This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, supporting the show on Patreon. Join Odo's ADFite army at patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast, where you can enjoy new episodes 48 hours early, the special director's cut version of each episode, and more. Join us in creating the AD history you deserve, and go to patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast to learn more. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how Rome's gods of old finally became obsolete? Or how their bastion of knowledge, the Library of Alexandra, burnt to the ground because of it? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. And Patrick, 391 to 400, the end of our fourth season of AD History. Are you ready? Are you pumped? I am super pumped. This this one's feel, felt like it's taken a bit longer than normal to get through this decade, but it's been super fascinating exploring it all. Decade, century, I mean. What an incredible, interesting century it has been for us, Paul. And Paul, what have you got on the docket for us in this final episode of the series? Well, some very interesting stuff. But before we get there... Mm. There's something that I'd like to address with the audience. Yes, by all means. That is awfully important. Yeah. So if you are an ongoing longtime listener of AD history, you know that Patrick and I tend to be pretty darn consistent in terms of getting out new episodes about every two weeks. However, it would be possible impossible to ignore that since January one, we have been a bit out of character, as it were. And I'd like to address why. And I'll first start by saying that, the, you know, the health of the show is fine. We're still mm. going full steam. Patrick and I are still working and recording, obviously. So no worries there. The, the health of the show is fighting fit. However, there is something else at hand. When it comes to AD history, part of my role in the partnership that I have with Patrick in making the show basically since the beginning is mm. that I am the post-production guy. Yeah. So you, you, taking this, care of the audio, the video, and the editing, that stuff. This podcast wouldn't happen if you didn't take on that, that burden as gracefully as you do and as, as consistently as you do. I really appreciate that. And it's something that I enjoy. It's something that I've really enjoyed learning. It's very much been worth its while entirely. And of course, it's very challenging. Mm. However, when something happens to me, things slow down and production becomes truncated. And there's a very specific reason why. When I was 18 years old, I was diagnosed with a condition known as ulcerative colitis. Some of you may be familiar with ulcerative colitis. Some of you may have heard of its half-sibling condition, Crohn's disease. You may, you may have heard it just in general. You may know somebody who has suffered from it. You may suffer from it. 
and I suffer from it. I was diagnosed when I was 18 years old, and it came out of nowhere. And for luckily, a lot of people who suffer from these conditions, which are known as inflammatory bowel disease, there are some very effective medicinal options for them. And if you live in the United States, considering I think we're one of maybe only two countries in the world that actually allow the advertisement of pharmaceuticals, not just on TV, but just in media in general, you may have heard of certain medications for it. And while they work very well for a lot of people, unfortunately, they didn't work very well for me. And that meant that I had to have surgery to address it. Quite a few of them. I'm not going to go into terrible detail, but I will say that not all of them went particularly well. Luckily, I haven't had to be under the knife in eight years. However, since they did not go particularly well, I deal with long-term complications of that, some very, at times, debilitating chronic elements from it that when it flares up and when it becomes problematic, our output suffers. And I think just to highlight, Paul, if you don't mind me sharing this, to highlight this fact, this isn't the first time your condition has flared up during since we began AD history. It was just there have been times where you have had uh, your condition flare up, but you've carried on working. I think you've messaged me from a hospital bed in the past saying like I've got this, I'm editing a video right now. So just to highlight what a workhorse you are in all this and how serious your most recent flare up was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that definitely happened. And mm. we still got it out on time. Exactly. Yeah. So we yeah, just just to highlight how serious it was this time but, around. You know, you and I, uh, you know, we're, we're a team. And, mm. and, and to, to that end, I could not be more thankful and more lucky to work with a, a better co-host, business partner, confidant and friend as, as yourself, Patrick. You help make this all possible and get through it and make it fun, keep it fresh, and really just inject so much fun mm, thank in, you. In, in, into this, this whole process. In addition to your tremendous compassion, just in general, not towards me and what I have to deal with, but just in general. That's, that's Patrick Foote. The Patrick Foote you hear behind the mic is, is professional Patrick Foote, and what a professional, let me tell you. <laughs> But this is who he is, truly, the, the good nature guy. This is, it's not a show, it's, and it's incredible. <laughs> and in addition to being a professional, mm. you know, just having knowledge of how you produce name explain and mm. do it so consistently and in, and so, and in such great numbers with tremendous variety and really having turned it into the YouTube powerhouse that it has been all by yourself. Thank you. Well, it's because of the burden of name explain. It's why I can't really, when you are down and out, it's why I can't jump on and do sort of podcast editing. It's because that just takes up. Unfortunately, I have to deal with my troublesome firstborn. I can't look after my much beloved secondborn. <laughs> well, that and, and of course, just given the nature mm. of our, our setup and, yeah. and how we do post-production, it's come... Uh, a long way. It's become a lot mm. more 
complicated. Then we you know, anticipate it, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of, we, we use specialized software, things that require a lot of research and, and study and experience to do. It's not something mm. you can just fall out of bed and do, right? I don't expect you, of course, to be able to just pop open Isotope for the first time and know what to do, right? Nope. <laughs> but it's part of the agreement that we do. And mm. But where you do have knowledge mm. and ability in that re- in regard, no one better. No, thank you. But prior to this point, I had never chosen to spoke, speak about this because one is I didn't, it wasn't relevant because it wasn't really affecting the show. Even when it was affecting me, the output continued as such. But because it's become very clear in recent months that this has been something that has been making itself known and obstructing our productivity, mm. I thought it was important to let you guys know for the first time more or less what's going on. Actually, I, you know, at some point, if, if people really want to know, I can get into the more nitty gritty details of it, but I don't think that portion of it is necessarily so no. important. We don't have the time. No. And I'm not terribly inclined because one is obviously there's a privacy issue because for all intents and purposes, whether it be you and Dame explain myself with TGNR or us together on AD History, we're public figures. Yeah. Our faces are out there. Our words, our voice is out there. And it will remain out there till basically the end of the internet. We've got to keep some and secrets, so, I'm afraid, kids. Yeah. And so there, there is a, a natural element of privacy that both of us always mm. look to maintain. But at this point, I thought it was important to let you guys know really what was happening here. And it's not an easy thing to discuss, even just on a private interpersonal basis, mm. because... If you haven't gone through it or you haven't been close to somebody who's gone through it, not even my specific condition, but some sort of serious medical condition, it can be hard to create a common frame of reference where Hmm. the person you're talking to, as empathetic genuinely as they may be, it's hard to get. And so I've become very selective in many cases in terms of when and whom I discuss it with. But for here, based on what's happened recently, I wanted to let you guys know what what the deal is here. And also to let you know that the health of AD history is robust. Oh, gosh, and yeah. we're not going anywhere anytime soon. And to mm, that end, no, no, no. we have an amazing episode today. Indeed, we do, Paul. So what are you covering in today's episode? This is something that's great because I've always had a tremendous fascination on this subject. In this last decade of the fourth century, we see yet another major nail in the coffin Mm. for the famed Library of Alexandria. And there's a lot of misnomers and understanding about how the Library of Alexandria was really destroyed. A lot of people envision it because it's become such common parlance for something so majestic Hmm. and and, and revered when for some reason it takes damage or whatnot, that it can be referenced as like the fire of the Library of Alexandria. But in reality, Hmm. this decline happened in stages. And so there's a very specific event that happens in this decade that allows us to talk about it and get a better look at that library because it is truly tremendous. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject. And like, conversely, how your topic covers a fire starting quite prolifically 
My topic's about a fire going out. I am covering kind of a symbolic end of Rome, I suppose, about the winding down of Rome's pagan beliefs, which culminated with the tur- with the turning off, with <laughs> the extinguishing of the uh, Vestal Virgin's fire. Uh, it's a super fascinating article as well, a story as well. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you guys. A very fire-centric episode we have on our hands today, Paul. Hot, hot, hot. Yes, indeed. In many ways, our two topics very much intertwined, and mm. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. We're really excited to give it to you. And with all of that in mind, and now all of it out of the way, mm. it is time to lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are and were important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it even 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, it feels like a very fitting end to this century is to discuss what is undoubtedly the ultimate end to Rome's pagan religion. It was during this final decade of the 4th century AD that Rome's traditional pagan religion was completely banned, with Christianity finally becoming the official religion of the empire. This was done by Emperor Theodosius I. A lot more, however, happened than just a simple change of official religions. Uh, Theodosius started a series of persecutions against those still following those pagan traditions of Rome. He closed all pagan temples and destroyed many too. However, perhaps most shockingly, especially for long-time listeners, it was he who disbanded the Vestal versions and even extinguished their eternal flame. Oh boy. Yeah, the fire had been kept burning in Rome for so long and it had finally gone out. So let's start, let's put some background on uh, Theodosius and the massacre of Thessalonica, which happened under his watch. Theodosius holds the title of being the last emperor to rule the entirety of Rome, the whole Roman Empire. He's the last emperor to rule what we consider to be all of Rome from what? Britain to Turkey, whatever you want to put it. He was the last one to have all of that. And as we mentioned in the last episode, he defeated Magnus Maximus, declaimed the entire empire, and put all the empire back in his control. Uh, Theodosius was a devout Christian. Though what's interesting is he was actually almost kicked out of the church. And this was because of uh, something called the Massacre of Thessalonica. This massacre started with the arrest of a local celebrity. Uh, he was a popular charioteer and he was arrested for a sexual offence. He attempted to rape a cupbearer. I want to take a quick tangent here to talk about cupbearers because I don't think we've really talked about cupbearers too much in this podcast, but they pop up quite a bit, I guess, or like they have an importance in history. Yeah, you know, I'm curious. I actually don't know that much about the cupbearers. What What's their importance exactly? So uh, their actual main job was what it sounds like. It was like to hold the cup of someone important, the emperor, like a noble person of some sort. There was like a poison testing element to it all as well. Obviously, like water and things wasn't the most clean thing to drink back 
way back when. So to have like a trusted cupbearer, but it was a lot more symbolic importance. Someone's cupbearer, see as like their right-hand person or their closest allies. It took, you know, you extremely had an extremely intimate relationship with your cupbearer, someone you trusted very much. So while their job might sound quite dumb, because literally they were there to bear the cup, to hold a cup, there's a lot more to it than that. They were very trusted allies to whoever whoever's cupbearer they were. That that would make perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's just a worthwhile tangent there. But uh, this arrest led to outrage from the people of uh, Thessalonica and they started rioting. And Titosius quickly heard about this and he wanted to sort it out. And he sent a Gothic troop he had under his command to go deal with it. This is something else I believe we talked about in either the last episode or a couple episodes back. They had a name, but like this, the emperors took in groups of uh, Gothic or Germanic tribes to help them out. And this was one of those examples. There was definitely that exchange of, okay, we'll let you in, yeah. but there's a price. Yeah, you got to work for us. Yeah. Theodosius ordered these troops to deal with this riot as if they were attacking the empire itself. And it was a massacre. There was very little mercy these goth troops showed. It's thought around 7,000 died in that massacre. Like, that's a huge number for stuff that came out from a riot. Uh, and this shocked so many people, mainly a man by the name of Ambrose. He was the Bishop of Milan at the time. Uh, he actually barred Theodosius. He barred the emperor of the entire empire from his services in Milan. He banned him from churches. <laughs> pretty much excommunicated him from the church. And Theodosius was devastated by this. As I said, he was a devout Christian. Uh, he was actually eventually allowed back into the church after he added a new law. Uh, this law being uh, he allowed anyone with a death sentence to go 30 days before the execution. So prior to that, they could be killed whenever. Now they legally had to have 30 days before the execution. And I'm just analyzing this because this is kind of interesting so this law allowed anybody that had a death sentence on their head mm. a 30-day wait Grace before period. they got the act yeah and I, i'm guessing though i'm sure it's they're playing politics here but that this is supposed to be a a charitable demonstration of christian mercy I imagine so. I'd hope, I I couldn't really find out why they would want this. If it was like good of 30 days to prove themselves innocent, it probably would be something like that to show like some sort of mercy to give them time to say goodbye, that sort of thing. Okay, so this is not like 30 days that can allow an appeal process to try to prove their innocence. This is just an extra 30 days on this earth I guess so, to make yeah. their I, peace I, with this life. I couldn't see find anything about doing an appeal. I think they were still going to die no matter what. It just gave them a few more days, a month or so on this planet. Boy, I don't, boy, I, I don't know if that's mercy or not. No, kind of. it's kind of worse knowing that it's coming up, I suppose. Yeah, I, mean, I, I would imagine it's not exactly like they had their freedom in that time. No, no. Uh, yeah, but it's a strange time. It's a strange thing. But that got him back into the church. And this was all in 390 AD. And it would be in the following year that he would start his fierce persecutions against the pagans. And this kind of got me thinking. And this is just my own theory. Part of me wonders, did he go so anti-pagan because he was almost kicked out of the church? Like, he realized like, what he could have lost that made him love it more. And it's something we've seen in history, for sure. It's just something I wondered. You know, it's an interesting question. Because mm. can, it can be interpreted in a number of ways. 
one you know if I, i'm i'm going to play devil's advocate mm. here just as an intellectual exercise but perhaps just perhaps playing devil's advocate one of the reasons that he went so anti-paganism was to truly demonstrate for greater consumption including the church just how far he was willing to go in the name of christianity exactly. to the point yeah. where he's willing to wipe out the pagans which i have to say if everything's being fair i can't exactly imagine jesus being on board with this line of thinking no totally but, yeah but uh, of course you know you in some ways in a lot of ways in fact you can't even bring jesus in the equation this is this is the church and this is politics yeah but it's really funny because obviously if you were to read the four gospels and obviously there are more books to the New Testament than just the four Gospels. But if you just read the four Gospels, I don't think there is anything within them, as different as some of them can be, especially John compared to the other three, that would ever sanction this particular line of action. Mm. Just saying, just saying. Yeah, no, that, that's a really great way. So I'd like trying to prove his worth to the church no look i love the church so much please take me in i will literally make sure people could only worship christianity please 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 no that's a great example that doesn't really reflect uh the teachings of jesus but by this i would love point, to meet his sunday school teacher yeah but by this point we're like over 300 years past the death of jesus like we're so far removed from we're almost at 400 years yeah, almost now. at 400 we're, we're so far removed from his life like the religion has enough to, has had enough time to pick up momentum and change into what it will I, I mean, become I'm, i mean basically if you take where we are today in 2022 mm -hmm. and that 400 years 400 years ago we were still in the age of sale exactly yeah like so you figure you know when you're doing 80 history you're like oh four centuries no, no. it's a long it's time a huge, <laughs> yeah like it is and as much detail like we go into decades like it still feels like we gloss over some big subjects but a lot of time has passed like since we began this show no doubt my friend uh but then we go on to i said the uh theodosian decrees slash the pagan persecutions and uh theodosian wanted all trace of rome's pagan past gone and he went about doing this through something known as the Theodosian Decrees. And this was a series of persecutions which basically banned paganism. And these persecutions included making visiting temples forbidden and abolishing the remaining pagan holidays. And I say the remaining pagan holidays because as we kind of talked about, a lot of these pagan holidays were kind of integrated absorbed absorbed yeah. yeah integrated into christianity anyway with of course the best example being how christmas day the 25th on the roman calendar that was the day of sol invictus so that was the day we yeah, celebrated it's saturnalia the celebration of saturnalia apologies yes but yeah like a lot of the stuff we even still celebrate to this day have their roots in roman paganism so what what they hadn't already absorbed they abolished and also things like augury, which we talked about in the past. Augury was the study of birds and like the omens in birds. If there were more birds on one day, that would be a good omen. That was banned. And even like witchcraft was banned. Like public pagan rituals, banned. And he even suspended the original Olympic Games. The last recorded ancient 
Greek Olympic Games, ancient Greek, ancient Roman Olympic Games we have, is 393 AD, which is obviously slap bang in the middle of this decade. So yeah, he was the one who ended the Olympic Games. And I don't believe, they, they didn't come back to the, when, when were the modern Olympic Games? The 20s, the 30s? I want to say that the Olympics resumed mm. either in the late 19th or certainly the mm. early 20th century, like maybe like even around the 1910s, maybe slightly later. I don't think later than the 20s, to be sure. Yeah, like it, it, it's frightening. They were gone for that long. Like it took a, here you go, the tradition began in 1904. Ah, there we go. So it wouldn't be right until there. 1904 we'd have any form of Olympics again. That's nuts. That is absolutely nuts. Yeah, it was Theodosius who, Theodosius who ended that. So something I want to know is how did the people who still followed the pagan religion respond to this? And I mean, that's the big question yeah. now, isn't it? They're still out there. Yeah, and from what I gathered, they did try to revolt in their own way, but by now, it was just so overcome. And these decrees, these persecutions are so all-encompassing that there wasn't really much they could do. They could probably still worship privately in their homes. Undoubtedly. Mm. And you stop and think for just a moment. You know, it's 393. Yeah. And in not even a century ago, you know, like 301, 302, 303, we had Diocletian officially persecuting Christians. Yeah, that's that's the part I find. The tables so, have turned. They've turned so much. It wasn't even, even like when you think at the beginning of Christianity, like the, even like at the beginning of the like first century, it wasn't even, it wasn't only then they were being persecuted. Up until now, like a few years back, they were being persecuted. Like it's such an all of a sudden a flip around. Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible how things can, relatively speaking, turn on a dime. Because yeah. as far as the fourth century goes, this was the the big boost to Christianity. Even though mm. it was doing it organically anyway, now they had the power of the Roman state behind yeah. it, for better or worse. For better or worse, indeed. And once all these uh, persecutions and decrees were in place, uh, Theodosius got to work on physically destroying the religion. He destroyed many holy temples, sites, objects, and images, just tried to get rid of them all. And that is, of course, why so many of these sites today are so ill-kept. And it goes back to the Pantheon, as we talked about uh, many episodes ago. The Pantheon actually became a Christian temple, and it's still a Christian temple to this day, Christian church. And that's why it's so well-preserved, because it had already been adapted, changed into a Christian temple. So that is why it still looks so good to this day. Luckily, I suppose. What is most shocking is that he actually disbanded, as I mentioned, the Vestal Virgins, and he put out Rome's eternal flame. So this is literally for the one last time. We've talked about the Vestal Virgins so often on this podcast. This is the last time. Who on earth were they? We have talked about the Vestal Virgins. I, I, I kind of presumed we had, but if we hadn't, well, we're going to talk about them now. So yeah, we, we certainly we might have touched upon. Yeah, because they're, they're so omnipotent. That's the only really term I can use for them in in ancient Rome. Kind of just like they're certainly omnipresent. Omnipresent, yeah, omnipresent, omni, omnipotent. Uh, yeah, definitely like this <laughs> omnipotent. I was like, yeah. well, how are they letting this happen? No, yeah, not that we know. But um, uh, the Vestal Virgins were an institute in Rome. They were formed around the seventh century. BC. Uh, there were six women who were chosen at a young age, and they were some of the holiest women in Rome. And of course, as the name implies, they had to remain virgins during their 30 years as a Vestal Virgin. So they were picked up at about six to 10 years old, and they'd be doing it until they were about 40 or so. 
that is quite a commitment. It's a huge commitment. And they were giving privileges few women in Rome actually had. Like, they were able to own property, among other things. And Whoa. Yeah, and their temple was uh, located pretty close to the Senate, and it shows just how highly they were regarded. They were like a deeply religious... You could even potentially argue they were like the closest to like a human form that pagan religion took. Like they were like the embodiment of those gods, you could potentially argue, I suppose. And they were tasked with a variety of things from performing rituals to giving advice. But their most important task was making sure that that eternal flame stayed alight. And let's talk about this eternal flame a bit. Yeah, so like it's a concept... It's a concept we've seen throughout history, but it was a hugely important in Rome, the sacred flame of Vesta. To give some understanding, Vesta was the goddess of the hearth, I believe, of the home. And it kind of represented Rome's standing in the world. The old theory was that as long as the fire stayed alight, Rome would survive. So whatever got thrown Rome's way, famine, plagues, war, as long as the fire was going, Rome would be fine. And of course, it was then prophesied that if the fire went out, Rome would be doomed. So you can see why it was such a huge deal that the Vestal Virgins made sure that it kept going. And something we need to remember, Paul, these were deeply, deeply like suspicious people, traditions, omens, that sort of thing, like especially during the pagan era of Rome. Like I said, they could see a couple birds in the sky and see it as a bad thing. So to them, it was hugely vital that this fire stayed alight. Yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of superstition yeah. and there's a lot of divination. Yes. You know, they're always they're, they're looking towards nature and the natural elements, you know, the stars in the skies, the planets, yeah, just the clouds, all of it for some kind of message. Yeah. And what's, I guess, most shocking is that the person to put this fire out permanently wasn't some rogue or like invader it was an empire emperor of the empire himself was the one to extinguish it it could have only happened from within mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i feel like as i mentioned there are many other uh sort of flames like this the one that comes to mind as we just mentioned is the olympic flame that's another great example we've held up fire in this high regard throughout history and keeping a flame alit it's a very symbolic thing and Paul, are there any others you sort of know of? Well, as an American, there's one in particular that comes to mind. Mm. And those who are American or familiar with the United States will probably be familiar with this one, even if you've never visited Washington, mm. D.C. Uh, and that, of course, is the eternal flame at the grave of President John F. Kennedy in the Arlington National Cemetery. And it was actually lit on the day of his funeral by his widow, Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And it hasn't been without interruption because there have been some interruptions for a number of reasons. But the idea is really for almost 60 years now, because next year will be the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. They've even created technology within it where I believe they have a consistent flow of gas Gosh. and they have a perpetually um, sparking apparatus so that it stays a lit even if it's raining mm. outside something like that uh, like i said there have been some interruptions for a number of reasons there have been some incidents also around it but as far as in the modern day at least as far as my country what i could think of off the top of my head that's the closest one the thing is though and i looked it up i've been there mm -hmm. i've been there a couple of times 
And obviously, if you've been to Arlington National Cemetery, it's, it's a very it's a very moving experience because you're surrounded by individuals that gave their life defending the United States, and they're they're buried there. And of course, the other big symbolic thing you have at Arlington National Cemetery, of course, is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, mm. that is constantly guarded around the clock, day and night, without operation. The flame is one thing. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and it being protected at all times in a very, very strict formal in terms of drill, and it's shared by all four services. Actually, I think we're coming up on five now if you consider Space Force. I don't know if they've become involved in this yet. But as far as the symbolism of the flame goes, I don't know that there is one specific preordained symbolism behind it, other than very much the you can kind of put together the tenor of it mm. uh, based on the the setting i know you've never visited washington no. dc patrick but at some point i imagine you probably will yeah. it, it it's very much a site that is we're seeing it's, it's kind of like going to the uh, cenotaph mm. it's a little similar to visiting the cenotaph albeit the cenotaph is out and about in public and you know, the Arlington National Cemetery is very much its its own very, very large thing. Same kind of idea. And they have the flame there. There's so many sort of vital sort of flames. There. I was just actually searching. There is a whole Wikipedia page of various eternal flames all across the world. And as you were saying, like, there is that sort of value in a flame. They're very symbolic things. They kind of, they symbolize power. Like, you know, we, we power things with fire and energy. But they're also such fragile things. They can go out. It's more than like, if you just had a statue, because like they just they kind of have a symbolization of like power, but also fragility, and it can go out. I think that's what we get that inspired from fire from to use an eternal flame to recognize so many things like that. I was looking uh, over here in the UK, we have one to commemorate lost uh, police officers in, in London, and we have another one to symbolize a football match, um, the Hillsborough disaster, which was when a large group of football fans died in a sort of collapse of a stadium figure so it's a really well-known event here in the uk but they are the uk's uh -huh. eternal flames yes yeah, so they're still going strong to this day this concept of an eternal flame the flame has has mm. power but it's also delicate and it yes. needs to be preserved and it needs to be protected and it needs to be cherished yes it needs to be preserved that's a great way of putting it paul there are these things that need to be preserved they can only flourish if if we care for them and that's, I guess, why we've gone to flames for so long throughout history as like a symbolization of memorial and power. And I just like, I want to talk about my, my kind of gut reaction to all of this. And like, my gut reaction is to be shocked to hear this happening, to hear Rome's eternal flame is going out, to hear the vestal versions are being disbanded. I think that's a lot of people's sort of gut reaction to hearing this sort of stuff. But when... You kind of look into it more. Perhaps it's a good thing. Like, we're starting to see Rome go away from those deeply traditional roots, those omens, that, that divination. Like, they aren't those people anymore. This ain't your granddaddy's Roman it Empire. It really isn't. And, like, they are no longer terrified of a fire going out. They see it as just the silly fire. And, and some women, like, there is that sort of thing. They're not as superstitious. I find that interesting. Well, this is a very different Rome. Uh, though, of course, spoiler alert for the next decade or so, the next few decades, Rome is going to go down the drain, at least Rome, Western Rome anyway. So 
maybe it was fitting the fire went out now. It, the timing couldn't be more poetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without a doubt. But, I, you know, I'd be very curious to know what the Roman on the street, if you had the ability to actually get a straight, honest answer for them, how they felt about this. That's one of the difficulties about, yeah. especially ancient history, is that it's, it's very difficult, as we've talked about before, to get that bottom-up perspective. And- they might have just been like, yeah, it's just a stupid fire. Of course it needs to go out. It doesn't mean anything. Maybe they, as a uh, as a civilization, had gotten to that point where they realized, actually, this is all a bit silly, isn't it? Maybe they'd reached that point. But we, we don't know. Maybe. We can't know. But and just as you mentioned earlier, this is really like a full circle thing. Christianity was once this taboo and you know, people were killed for celebrating Christianity because they weren't worshipping the likes of Jupiter and Juno and Mars. Now, they're the ones who are being killed, people who do follow the old gods. They're the ones who are being persecuted and killed. And Christianity is the state religion now. It's just mad. It really has come just Mm. such a long way. But even then, there will still be vestiges of it that carry with them that that can't be exercised. And I know we're coming towards the close of the segment here, but I can give you one of them. And it's a way that a lot of us may not even necessarily be fully conscious of, but it's interesting. So obviously when it comes to the topic of God, that everybody has a slightly different opinion or Mm. perspective on that. But something that's very fascinating is that if you ask people, because as human beings, we, we anthropomorphize everything mm. from God to, you know, giving our, our cats and dogs like human mm. personalities for our own amusement. And in this case, I would bet you dollars to donuts <laughs> that if you asked somebody to describe, at least certainly in the West, what God looked like, they would describe a figure that in all likelihood, more times than not, might just be a pretty decent description of the many depictions, classic depictions of Zeus. That is so true and something I had not noticed myself. Yeah, when I think what God looks like, I think a man a man with a big beard and long hair in robes, and that is dead on what Zeus looks like 90% of the time, too. Yeah, that is a great I mean, when I think when I think of ways the uh Roman pagan religion has lived on, I think about the planets in their names. Like we haven't got rid of those. They didn't all of a sudden change the names of the planet. You know, Jupiter's not called St. Paul anymore, like Neptune's not called St. Peter's, St. Peter anymore. Um no, but that's a great example. I never put those together, Paul. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Is that what you have for us, That Patrick? is all I have for us. But as you, we said at the beginning, Paul, that is only the beginning of like the dismantling of the pagan religion. This is, this is such a big change coming up for Rome. And we're going to talk about it more like what Theodosius did with the Library of Alexandra. It is just as sort of staggering. Another institute of Rome being taken away in this time period. And you're going to cover that pretty soon. There's no question about it. We're going to cover it right after our middle segment. But with that in mind, us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word for one. Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. 
Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you, Anna. Now, Paul, it's time for our legendary middle segment where we have a wonderful question uh, sent over to us via one of our amazing patrons, and you can become a patron too. Go visit patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. And you can see how you could help support the podcast too and get loads of amazing rewards in return. One of those rewards being able to answer questions, ask us questions here in the middle segment. And yeah, we actually got a really cool question from this. You know, naturally, every time we tell you what's in play, ask us questions about the show, ask us about history of covered, history come up, history in general, something that has to do with Patrick and I's you know, professional life, whether it's 80 history or outside. This one's kind of interesting because somebody actually took us up on the last one, which is the question. Hmm today comes from a patron who asks, what are some of your proudest professional accomplishments as content creators and related mm. to content creation? And, you know, this is kind of an interesting question because I don't think you or I are, are not naturally inclined to go around beating our own chest publicly about mm. such things. I, I don't think you would ever hear us talk about it unless we were prompted to. No, I but, think I'm a failure 99% of the time still, Paul. Yeah, that, that, that is a company of two, my friend. <laughs> but luckily, we have, we have some stuff to show for ourselves. And, you know, Mr. Name, explain. You know, what, what's one of yours? So my gut reaction to that question, uh, it has to be hitting 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. I know I'm on. Oh, of course, of course. I'm on about 320,000 now, 325, I think now. That's a hell of an accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah. But like YouTube only really celebrates 100, a million, I think 10 million as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But that initial 100, that was like, I'd always said to myself, I would make this my full-time job at 100,000 subscribers. And that's when you get the silver play button plaque. That is definitely like to this day, that is still my proudest achievement hitting that huge milestone. I remember like when I first began Name Explain thinking, if I could hit that, I'd be happy. I wouldn't expect any more. And obviously it has grown since then. That, that's definitely number one for myself. In fact, you and I first sat down and, and did that interview, mm. you know, coincidentally, shortly after that happened. Yeah. So like, like around March 2018. It officially felt like, hey, I'm a famous person. Now. People want to interview me. Like It, kind of it was a complete coincidence. And, yeah, just coincidence. But you of- know, when you're, when you're coming from my perspective, mm. you're, you're just looking for a good story. In that case, it just it happened because you had kind of like been obliquely on my radar as somebody mm. that I might want to talk to at some point. And for whatever reason, I just kind of, you know, was, you know, going along. And anytime you're in this business, because obviously this is only part of what I do, mm. and you reach out to somebody, especially as a, as a cold invitation, you never know what you're going to get. No. And it just so happened that you had recently crossed that point. I was in a very merry mood. <laughs> you were you were definitely in uh, in famous in, in you know fine fettle <laughs> to use an antiquated term. 
but it was well-deserved. I mean, Name Explained was original. It still is. You are totally regimented. And folks, I have the privilege of knowing Patrick just as a friend and working together now for, you know, when you put, when you count the development process that lasted mm. seven months for 80 history, we've mm. been working together for three years. And I know I said this earlier in the show, but he is absolutely a truly regimented professional. Everything you see in Name Explain has been thought out and there's an entirely well designed and scheduled and regimented production process that leads to the you know amazing catalog of videos that Name Explain has published since 2016 20, uh, late 2015 late 2015 mm. so oh, thank you very much Paul no um credit yeah, I love what does go into it <laughs> I'm just happy to be doing it still, really. What about yourself, Paul? Like, you've done some amazing stuff. Some of your articles, like, on TGNR have hit the big time. Some of them are very fascinating. You know, one of the more interesting things that happened to me once was an article of mine. Interestingly enough, it was it's actually, it, it, it was um, from back in, I want to say, early 2016, but it didn't get to the point I'm about to mention until a couple months later. Mm. It was actually about uh, the the YouTube channel, The Great War, back mm. when they were still covering World War One. Now the channel has continued. It's gone on past that into the late, after that into the early 20s. And Indy Nidell has since moved on to World mm. War Two in real time. But I did a an article about them. I actually mm. tried reaching out to them. They didn't get back to me at the time. And ba- based on what I'm about to say, I, I can guarantee you they most certainly wish they did. And a couple of months after I published it, that particular article ended up on the first page of Reddit. Oh, nice. That's amazing. I remember when I first began Name Explain, my absolute dream was to hit the front page of Reddit. Never hmm. happened. But like, that is, that, that's still how you made it. Oh, you never know. Um, I don't know how much I trust. I don't know how much stock I put in Reddit these days. But back in the day, it was a wonderful website. Where, like, but that's amazing. To hit the front page of Reddit is like an internet. I've made it. Well, I, I would hardly say that I, that I feel like I've made it. But it was one of those things where I was kind of new to reddit in terms mm. of being familiar with it and it it i didn't realize until you know a little bit afterwards like oh that's kind of a big deal mm. that is so, a huge deal like it, yeah, I, yeah i was i was very very proud of it still am uh, that, that was that was an article that was originally published on tgnr but then mm. was also republished for uh war history online which was really Brilliant. cool it's a nice little feather in my hat what reddit- about you what's another one for you I think another one for me is, of course, and it, it's kind of a tainted one as well in a strange way. And I'll go into why it was sort of tainted. Um, publishing the books, holding, uh, publishing the first oh, book, getting, huge. Yeah, getting, getting my first box of stock and holding my book for the first time. That was amazing. I say it's kind of tainted because I looked at it and noted loads of spelling errors still in it, which have luckily been sorted out in future er- editions. That kind of tainted it to a degree, but being able to sort of like hold my book for the first time. And it was time not was self-published. Wild. Neither of no, them no, are no, self-published. No. You you had a contract with a legitimate publisher. Yes, that's yeah. huge. Yeah, no, that that's a, that's a, something I'm very proud of too. And they're both in audiobook fashion. Mm-hmm. They're great. The guy who reads them, John Cowley, he um fantastic, fantastic audiobook narrator. You know, if if you end up doing a number three at some point, <laughs> should we'll that see. happen? Yeah. Something that I would love to see, and I get the feeling a lot of 
longtime viewers and supporters of Name Explain, I'm sure would really appreciate it as well. Mm. Though you and I, after doing 80 history for almost three years, fully understand the difficulty of what I'm about to about to say mm. is given how name explain is largely presented obviously you've been on screen now doing fun with first names but mm. the vast majority of the videos that are in your catalog are done with voiceover mm. with the you know your amazing uh, original illustrations to me if i'm just looking at it purely as a supporter and someone who really enjoys name explain it would be awesome if you're able to negotiate that you would be the one narrating volume three. Uh, I, I imagine people do want that. And do you know who doesn't want that? Well, in, in this, <laughs> well, in this case, I'm not suggesting that you would be the one doing it in your own home. Like mm. hypothetically, you know, whoever, you know, the, the publisher would say, you know, here's the studio that we set it yes, up with. Yeah. Everybody, everybody else is taking care of that part of it. You ha simply have to sit down and read the book. If I could do that, also have like an expert linguist on board to tell me how to pronounce every word, like someone do the legwork or figure out how to say, because obviously those books dive in some really obscure words. If I have someone tell me how to say those words as well, that would be amazing as well. Yeah, if I could just walk in, talk, and not edit it myself. Gosh, I don't want to edit like no, 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 no. You wouldn't do any of that. All, all it would be would be you going to the studio. You would have an engineer. There would be an editor. You would simply have to prepare properly and then sit down and then read the book. Yeah, I could probably do I could probably do that's, that. That's what about. I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. I'm not talking about fun. any other legwork, but that's still difficult to do. I don't think a lot mm. of people appreciate just how difficult that is and how much preparation uh, you know, professional and now rather famous given how audiobooks have taken off mm. given the smartphone and, and how information is so easily conveyed these days. But voiceover, especially long-form narration, mm. is, is an art and a talent that has to be cultivated. It takes experience. It takes time. Mm. It takes investment. It's a very hard thing to do. And in all the stuff that I've done in terms of like for learning about audio for 80 history, mm. podcasting and voiceover are like half-siblings. Yeah. Because there's a lot of crossover and a lot of voiceover people that you hear all the time on commercials and whatnot. Mm. They're literally sitting in their home studio, pumping those out and doing them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, if, if, if I had to be like, I've always thought probably one of the most fortunate people in show business is Dan Castellaneta because he earns an oh, awful yeah. lot of money, but can probably walk around with no one really knowing who he is as well. They kind of like, like, it looks kind of familiar because he's been on, he's been before the camera he, before. He does, yeah, he has done bits and bobs on front of the camera, but like, I think they get paid probably, they're probably on beyond a million per episode these days. Oh, w w without a yeah. doubt. Though, w though, when it comes to like famous narrators now, because mm. you, you're a big, you enjoy audiobooks a lot as yes, well. Yes, yeah, big audiobook fan. You, you've listened to a book that's been narrated by John Lee. Potentially, you might know the voice if you heard it. John Lee, let me check. Yeah, quickly. John Lee. I mean, he's done so many different titles that you know it's it's beyond mm. beyond ability. He's so and he's done a lot of history titles too. Naturally, that's one of the reasons why he keeps showing oh, up okay. with me. Oh yeah, I'm looking now. He did well. Operation Mincemeat. He did the original audiobook for that. Did you did you did you do uh, did you listen or read Operation Mincemeat? 
No, 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 it's just come up on Audible here, and it's just been made into oh, a film. That's a I know, great I, book. I know the story. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I, I loved it. It's yeah. great. I'm a big, big fan of the author whose name is escaping Ben McIntyre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ben McIntyre. He's done a lot of other really good stuff. In fact, I've mentioned him on the show before. Mm-hmm. No, but, uh, yeah, uh, Paul. I want to hear another one from yourself, though. Don't want to say talk about myself. <laughs> okay, so. In terms of an interview that I did that I was particularly proud of is I got to do this great three-part, and he and I sat down for about three hours, mm. three-hour interview with a hip-hop artist Oh, nice! Uh, whose, whose name is uh, Chris Webby. Mm. And Chris Webby is, is really an interesting guy, and you know he's had quite a few claims to fame, but at the time, like his first breakout, like he ended up something like this must have been in the late 2000s. Mm. He ended up like something like number 2 on Billboard's Top 100 Hip Hop. Nice. And this was earlier this year, maybe late last year. Uh he had a recent single that came out that ended up number 1 on Apple Music for a while. Brilliant. Yeah, so that that was a really good extended interview. It was very tight. Is it, it was um, TGNR? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's it's a it's a three parter. I you know I I'm very particular when how I interview people, hmm. which is to say that like when it comes to their personal life, I don't get into their personal life unless explicitly we talk beforehand that this hmm. is something to expect and that they're okay with that. I'm really against sandbagging people in that situation. Hmm. Little different for people like politicians and things of that nature, where you really have journalism has to hold these folks accountable. But when you're coming to artists, creators, things of that nature, mm. I like very much focusing on their work. And I felt like I asked a lot of really good and interesting questions, and he had a very interesting life. So that he does, and it's it was a really kind of a fun experience. And the fact that he's done so well, and I got the chance to sit down with the guy for three hours. I think I was quite proud of that. Definitely. And something that has to be mentioned is what a fantastic interviewer you are, Paul. Like, I've done vague oh, interview sort of stuff in the past. And it, you, you kind of think, oh, yeah, you just ask questions, but there's so much more to it. It's such like, it's just like weaving and like milking information out of people in such a smart way. It's so much more than just asking questions. And you've got such a good knack for it. Well, thank you. It's, it's really a matter of, you, you really have to do your research beforehand. Mm. You know, that, that's important. You never want to go into that without really understanding the material and the individual who's in front of you. Mm. And two, in terms of what I consider to be in play, because like I said, for the most part, unless this is something a person really wants to talk about, especially, mm. like I said, politicians, people like that, those public figures that, you know, are pulling the strings and, of the world and whatnot, those people have to be accountable. You can sad bag the hell out of them. I, I really do like focusing on their work and trying to ask questions that nobody else is asking, but that the reader or potentially listener wants to know, but they didn't realize they wanted to know. Mm. That's really important to me. So that was a cool one. What's another one for you, Patrick? Something happened recently, which wasn't a massive event. But it was strange in its own way. I got recognized in public for the first time. You you got picked out in the wild? <laughs> yeah, I was just oh, about, man. Yeah, I was just about to go into the post office. 
and someone was just leaving the post office and they they gave me a very s- stark look and I had my headphones on at the time. So I kind of just pulled my headphones out. I was like, hello? And you just kind of see sort of, he was just sort of staring at me and it was a guy and his partner and he came up to me, excuse me, this is really weird, but are you a YouTuber? And I was like, yes. And he was like, his name explains it. And I explained to his girlfriend, oh, like, oh, we watched some of his videos. It's like, oh, hi. And that was just, that was a very odd, surreal experience. Like, yeah. I imagine so. Especially with someone who is primarily behind the camera, behind the microphone even. I'm not on camera all too much. So um, that was very odd and very surreal. Very lovely. They were really nice um the really nice That's couple so cool. got chatting to him. That was kind of like a kind of, oh, I've made it sort of moment. Like I've got, I've oh, yeah. recognized. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That was, that was a fun moment. Now, now, you know, now you're only one small step away from having your privacy invaded by TMZ. Exactly. Yes. Or getting, <laughs> getting swatted or something. What was it called? They used to, do on, I can't remember. It was a thing on Twitch. Like they'll send a SWAT team to your house. Maybe that's next. Oh, oh, I, I, I think I'm a little too old for Twitch in most oh, cases. I just unfortunately. about understand it. I just about understand Twitch. Uh, another one that was really great. I guess it was back in 2018. I had published a. So this was June of 2018, mm. and the year before on TGNR, I had published a, a history article of sorts that was titled. What if D-Day failed? Mm. Basically, you know, what if the Allies basically went belly up, uh, you know, for the, the invasion of Normandy? And it's an article that did well. Mm-hmm. My art history articles usually do quite well. I remember a year after that, it was June 5th, 2018, in the late afternoon, I get an email from an AM radio station, <laughs> uh, um, like one of the main news AM radio, news talk radio stations from a station located in Omaha, Nebraska. Mm. And the producer basically said, hey, you know, I just read uh, your article about what if D-Day failed. And would you be willing to come on air tomorrow morning with our, our host for mm. five or six minutes? Because, you know, those, those segments in those kind of morning talk news programs are, are pretty tight especially when you're talking about morning drive, mm. morning commute stuff, even in a place like Omaha, Nebraska, you know, there's still plenty of stuff going on yeah. there in and around the city, you know? And I remember going on and doing it. And I was really proud of it because that was the, the first time that I'd ever been contacted to do mm. something like that before. And the funny thing about it was I was really happy with how it turned out, but I get the feeling that the host, who was clearly a good deal older than I was, you know, he must have mm. been in his mid to late 60s, I'm guessing. It wasn't the interview that I think he was expecting. Okay. And, and the reason I say this is apparently they were having a conversation a day or two before on air that kind of led to this idea of what would happen if D-Day failed. The producer goes out, he finds some articles, he seems to enjoy mine, he contacts me, he brings me on to talk. And it wasn't exactly the one that he thought he would get. And, you know, I'm not, you know, disparaging at all. It's always a great honor to be called in like that Mm. and say, hey, would you speak before our audience? And this was, you know, it's a news radio station for Nebraska, but given the nature of the power of their transmitter and their market, Mm. which is much larger than just the city, 
Mm. You know, you're basically talking about a good chunk of Nebraska and, you know, parts of neighboring states. You know, at night, the thing is powerful enough to get the signal out to San Francisco. Mm. But I, I, there was an immediate tell in the interview when he asked me in, you know, talking about, you know, what would have happened when he said, you know, the, the Germans were, you know, they're really successful throughout the war and, and everything that was going on. And do you think if D-Day had failed that they would have won the war and taken over the world? And right there was the, was the, was the give. Yeah. They and the reason that. I say that yeah. is because, and once again, this is not to get on the guy, but it's just, this, this is history I know intimately. If you're really familiar with the, this, this history and the Second World War, especially in the European theater, you know that in June 1944 uh, and on June 6th, even though the operation was by no means like some fait accompli, we mm. look at it back down, we're like, oh, yeah, of course they were going to do it because we had this, 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 that. At the time, those who are planning it and preparing for it in the Western Allies were legitimately concerned and worried mm. that this would be one of the worst flops and failures in military history because an amphibious invasion from the sea is incredibly difficult to do. And there were so mm. many prerequisites. But the reason I say it was the tell in terms of just the knowledge of the person who was interviewing me is because by 1944, as difficult as that invasion was, the back of the Wehrmacht had largely been broken on the Eastern Front at that point. After, after Stalingrad, when you had the German Sixth Army that w surrendered in late January, early February 1943, the, da you know, the disaster at the Kursk salient that summer in July of 1943, they were on the way back. You know, they were on the back foot. They were retreating back towards Germany. They were going to lose the war. The question was, what was post-war Europe going to look like? And the fact of the matter is, D-Day was not about stopping the Germans from taking over the world. No. And it be, at that point, it was about the future of Western Europe. And had it failed, there was a worry, and, and Churchill was certainly worried about this, that you would have had Stalin in control of a territory that ran from Lisbon in Portugal to Vladivostok in the Pacific. And I, and I told him that that was the scenario. And I said, you know, that would be a nightmare scenario, my friend. And he said, well, and this was kind of weird. He's like, well, you know, fascism, you know, taking over the world, you know, would be uh, disaster. Let's put it that way. And I said, yes, that's, that's obvious. There's no question about that. There's no, you're not going to get any objection from me. I don't think you need me to tell you that Nazism is bad, but that's how the Western allies were thinking. But all the same, mm. I was very happy with how it came out. It did well. I have a copy of it. Listen Fantastic. to it. It's out there, out there somewhere. But that was really cool. I'll have one more after you do your next yeah. one, because the oh, last a, one's cool and so, it's short. Yeah. So my last one, this kind of a bit of a backstory. Um, I had someone become a patron. So on, on, on my Patreon, one of my highest tier is I'll make like a personal video for yourself, explaining how like the origin of your first and last name. Um, and I had someone, I, it's every now and then, maybe once or twice a year, I get a patron do that. It's, it's a really fun activity to, to, to do. And a few years back, I had someone join. And I won't say their name. Uh, and then they, I, I messaged them saying, oh, thanks for becoming a patron. Here's like a, here, here's your rewards. Here's what I need from you, the normal sort of stuff. 
Like uh, you do. Yeah. And then they got back to me. And the name, the person who messaged me back wasn't the name of the person himself. It was the person's mum. So I'll say the name was Ben Smith. So it was actually Ben Smith's mum who contacted me. That's a fake name, by the way. But the name of the patron said Ben Smith, but it's actually Ben Smith's mum talking to me. Uh, and they said, hi there, my son, Ben Smith, uh, adores your videos. He's got, I think it's cerebral palsy. He had mm. some very bad disabled uh, disabilities, like wheelchair bound. And it was his mum saying, oh, he loves your videos. His birthday's coming up soon. I'm trying to contact as many of his favorite YouTubers as possible to, as a present. And so it was just great to be able to make this video for this kid. And when I'm feeling like, it was just, it was just a very nice reminder of like one specific story. And then when I made the video, I even put like a little on-camera, hey, Ben Smith, happy birthday. Hope you have a lovely day. Thank you so much for enjoying the channel. I tacked that onto the end of it. Um, I sent it off in time for his birthday. And then his mum got back to me saying, oh, Ben Smith loved your video. It was so lovely. He really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. So it was just a really lovely thing to do, I suppose. That was something I'm very proud of myself, helping this. Oh, goodness, Helping yes. make this kid who hasn't had the best lot in life, bless him, uh, have a wonderful birthday and be a part of that. And whenever I'm because YouTube and podcasting to the, to the very same extent, it's such a number heavy experience it's all like hey get big numbers get lots of viewers get lots of subscribers but you forget that there are there are people there exactly and each one of those views is an individual so whenever i'm feeling a bit crap in my numbers it's my own i help that one kid feel amazing like that's that's what it's all about making those connections with those sort of singular people and that reminds me of that that's an yeah. incredible story yeah i mean that i mean you you are the patron saint of name explain <laughs> yeah and it just, it, it was just a lovely thing to do to help out this kid in no way. I think he got a drawing as well. I did a little drawing. That's beautiful. That was a lovely thing for his mum to do as well, to think, hey, he's really into this. I'm going to absolutely get stuff. It was, just, it was just a really nice thing. Never underestimate the love of a mother. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So my last one is, is kind of cool because it really just kind of came out of nowhere. I was, I was, I had, I had done an article about, I forgot now what exactly it's titled, but it has it, the the title of the article is um, "Are We Alone? Humanity's Place in the Universe," mm. and it talks about you know various theories about what and and plausible you know accepted scientifically theories about what the possibilities are for life elsewhere in the universe, and if we encountered that such life. You know, what, what are some of the possibilities in terms of what the situation actually is? Because I, I've always found that very interesting. I'm not talking about any of the crackpot tinfoil hat stuff. No. I'm talking about things that, that scientists and philosophers have discussed at great length with tremendous credibility. And I was doing some uh, analytics work for TGNR. And something when you're a website administrator, you know, there are so many reference sites that mm. take your material that have had links that bring it to your site. And you can see that it's cataloged. And I believe this was sometime in either late 2015 or early 2016, maybe it was sometime in 2016. And I was going through it and I saw a, a link from Wesleyan University mm. in Connecticut. It's a good school. 
Mm. And I was like, well, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, what's this all about? And yeah, because I saw maybe like a, a few dozen clicks that brought it, brought it to that article. And I decided to follow it back, figure out what, what the hell is this, right? And I was going through it and it, it brought me to like kind of like a, a, a blackboard type thing. If you're familiar, like with the university, it's mm. just kind of like a information system that helps you communicate with the class. Yeah. And I started clicking around and I went into the syllabus and this was a course about astronomy and the possibility. One of the things that they discuss is what are, you know, some of the most accepted and credible theories about what is out there in terms of other intelligent life in the universe. Mm. And I decided like, well, let me click on the syllabus for this. And it was either in week one or week two of the course. I saw that my article that I had written for TGNR, the Are We Alone, Humanity's Place in the Universe, mm. was required reading for the class. Oh, brilliant. That's in like amazing. week two. I was absolutely stunned. Totally. Absolutely stunned. I thought to myself, whoa, there's something I didn't intend on doing. No. Oh, well done. That's and, amazing. And I, w I was so taken by it, I decided to actually email the professor. I said, you know, I was doing some analytics management work and I noticed this. It's like, this, this is required for your course. He said, yeah, I found yeah. your article. And I thought it was a really good introduction because it was kind of a light article. I yeah. mean, it was very substantive, but it, there was also kind of like a lot of cheeky humor in it as well. If I were to describe it anything, it, it was a, an article, though far more serious and mm. I'd like to think far better written, that was kind of like in the, uh, the form of a cracked article. Oh, okay. If you're familiar Dino with that. Cracked, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I saw it and I thought, you know, this is just like a perfect light introduction that it's funny, it's good, but at the same time, it's communicating exactly the kind of themes that we're going to be discussing later on in the yeah. course. I couldn't think he of said, a... you know, I really enjoyed it and, and thank you for publishing. And it was just one of those amazing things that you don't expect to happen. That's the amazing thing about being a creator online, whether it's YouTube or podcasting or or online publishing in the case of an online magazine like TGNR, you never know who's reading, you never know who's watching, no. and you never know who is listening. Those numbers are people. Yeah, yeah, that's a great. That's a great example of another another great example of those numbers are people. Yeah, what? Well, I couldn't think of a better way to start a course of reading one of your articles, Paul. No, <laughs> thank you so much. Well, before we break our arms, patting ourselves on the back. <laughs> yeah, all this segment has been. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Just see. If somebody asked and, you know, they're a patron, they're going to get what they asked for. If you want to submit a question for Patrick or myself to answer in this famous middle segment, whether that be history of covered, history coming up, history in general about the show, or obviously in this case, our professional yeah. life, that's all in play. If you donate to the 80 History Podcast on the $5 tier or higher per month and in doing so, you also get a whole bunch of other really great rewards for doing so. You get episodes 48 hours early. That's both in its video and audio form, might I ask. They are also the wonderful and salacious director's cut version. So you get a little bit extra. You get to see a little bit of saltiness. Obviously, now since we're doing video on YouTube, people are getting the ringside seat, but they don't necessarily see everything that happens in front of the camera, and you get a little bit more there. Mm. Obviously, we're looking to build a greater community and looking to better, in this case, produce 
the AD history podcast you deserve. Mm. And, you know, for Patrick and myself, these episodes, especially now that we're doing video, mm. they are extremely time intensive yeah. and resource intensive. We had to learn a lot. We've had to do a lot. A single episode now, when you have the video portion of it for a two hour episode, 90 minutes to two hours, that's a very long podcast. And yeah. this most recent one before this literally took nearly 40 hours to complete. That's a yeah. full work week. Yeah. That, that is the kind of work that goes in to the AD History Podcast. And I can tell you this, one, and we talk about this in terms of the goals we want to hit mm. for AD History and trying to get to that first $100 a month category. And the first thing we really want to do is when we get there, as goodness gracious, we really want to hire an editor. Yes, please. Yes, someone else who can do this for us. Absolutely. Because what we do best, even though we do pretty darn well in terms of the production quality, I'd like to say it's still not our forte. No, what we do no. is researching and presenting history that you enjoy behind the microphone, in front of the camera. Yeah. And if you took the, that, that 40 something hours out, we could do that a lot easier and it would be a lot, we could do it a lot more. Because if it was just a matter of the research and preparation for an episode, boy, you wouldn't have seen anything yet. On top of the fact, and this can't be understated, this is part of our job. Mm. This is this yeah. not a hobby. This no. is a very real thing for us. And it helps create the 80 history you deserve. Yeah. It helps put food into our mouths. And on top of that, we know that there are still things that we want to do in 80 history that with your support will be possible. And in addition to that, sooner than later, we're actually going to be releasing another edition of the Best of BC, which yeah. is always a lot of fun. And we're creating more and more content, both on Patreon and for public consumption. And you joining the ADFI army on $3 a month or higher most definitely helps us get closer to that point. And we do everything possible to keep you guys happy, keep you in the loop. And goodness gracious, even just that small amount every month will most certainly make a great difference mm. to us, to the show. And believe me, we could not be any more grateful. And on top of that, we simply enjoy meeting you. Yes. That's, it's the people and, and the fans that count. And whether you're a patron or whether you're not, it doesn't matter. We still adore you. And if you can't donate to the AD History Podcast on Patreon, and on top of that, we do have one-time donation options through PayPal. We'll have a link for that on YouTube in the description, and we'll get you ways to get to that link if you're just listening on the podcast directories as well. If you still want to help us out, but you can't afford to do it, we know times are hard at the mm. moment. We are not oblivious to this by no, any means. No. We're living in the same world and hopefully mostly the same reality. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a glowing five-star rating and review. It helps with the algorithm on Apple Podcasts. It helps potential listeners see what they're getting into. It helps in the search results on top of that. Or you can go over to podchaser.com, which is considered the IMDB of podcasts, mm. and leave a review there. You can do it for the show overall or for individual episodes as well. If you are listening to us through Audible, you can rate 
an individual episode or the show overall. And this is really great because I know there are quite a lot of you out here who listen to the AD History Podcast on Spotify. And now if you are a listener on Spotify, so long as you're actually listening, they don't let you just show up and try to rate something. They actually want to know that you've been listening yeah. to it. They're very good about that, to be sure. And that's fair, because you, you don't want the results to be tainted. Now on Spotify, they are having listeners rate on a, on a five-star basis for the show. Mm. And if you're listening on Spotify, leave us that glowing five-star rating. We appreciate it so much. And of course, if you're on YouTube, if you're on YouTube, you know what you got to do. Yeah. Like share, subscribe, comment, 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 because yeah. we definitely want to hear from you. We definitely want to hear from you. And these little things where you just take a minute of time and a little bit of effort really mean the world to us and help show immeasurably. You might not think so, but we know so. Take our word for it. We wouldn't be asking if that weren't the case. So we'd like to thank our patron for submitting this really yes. kind of personal personal questions yeah. our arms are very sore from patting ourselves in the back <laughs> so we'll have to have to avoid doing that for a while but we thank them both for their question and for donating to the 80 history podcast on patreon which you can find at patreon.com slash 80 history podcast once again that's patreon.com slash 80 history podcast and with that us here you there and we'll be back right after word from ad this is the 80 history podcast and thank you very much, Anna. Okay, so Paul, you have a really interesting subject for us this time, and it's about what is genuinely considered one of the greatest, most tragic losses of ancient history. And this being about, as you like to refer to it as, another nail, perhaps the final nail in the coffin of the Library of Alexandra. Please do tell us all about it. Oh, I am chomping at the bit to tell you all about it. Lord Foot. Because yes, this is another nail in the coffin for the famed, nay legendary mm. library of Alexandria. It, it's become like a metaphor of sorts by this point. Like everyone knows like mm. something like a great loss. It's often referred to as like, oh, it's like the Library of Alexandria. It's one of those sort of common parts of ancient history that's just become part of our everyday lexicon to an extent. You have definitely hit on a singular truth. So, yes, th this is absolutely the case. And, you know, we have a sophisticated audience. You know, they're, they're very much up on the parlance when it comes to things of this nature, to be sure. They know what we're talking mm. about. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? So, with Theodosius I making Christianity the official state religion of the empire, it's fair to say that the times, they are a-changing. <laughs> Ron Burgundy never heard that song. <laughs> So when things change, they hit him hard. <laughs> Indeed. To think less than a century prior to this juncture, Patrick, the Roman state was openly persecuting Christians under Diocletian. And oh, how the tables have turned. And in yeah. Alexandria, the times were no less a change in the empire-wide conversion to Christianity. But in the incidental crosshairs of this monumental change was the famed Library of Alexandria where, due to the discovery of what appears to be an illicit pagan temple elsewhere in Alexandria, it snowballed into yet another act of destruction on the famed library. 
So you say another act of destruction. There's this sort of popular conception in history that it was gone in one fell swoop, that there was this massive fire or this tragic event that ended the Library of Alexandria. But from that saying another act, so it was more like it just got slowly destroyed over time in bits and bobs as opposed to being one catastrophic event for the library. Yes, and we're going to mm. get into that. That's a very mm. important mm. point. It's a very common misconception that mm. most people, even even as sophisticated as our audience, though, may, may not be familiar with that, mm. given especially how it's fallen into parlance makes it sound like it came at down and out in one felt swoop. Mm. But for many, especially the keen students of history, the Library of Alexandria evoked powerful images. One sees the center of higher learning and research during the period of Mediterranean antiquity. Images of great lectures being given, given by great minds. Experiments being undertaken, stacks upon stacks of just parchment scrolls with such valuable accumulated knowledge. Undoubtedly, archiving a vast repository of knowledge that had been accumulated in that part of the ancient world. But when it comes to the fire of the Library of Alexandria, as we were mentioning earlier, many seem to envision mm. it as a single sweeping event that extirpated the fame repository of ancient knowledge. This was not the case at all. And over eight centuries long existence of the library, its fall came in stages over actually a rather long period of time, centuries, to be sure. So I just, 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 I think this is what happens with a lot of history. Everyone thinks it's like a singular, like things end with singular events. And that just isn't the case. Like there wasn't one day the library fell. There wasn't one day the Roman Empire fell. It's always just like, history likes to depict this as being like this one epic event that happened. But that, that is so rarely the case. Like it normally is a long period of time things deteriorate. The human mind likes to simplify things. Mm-hmm. Nice, concise we only have endings. so much, how much, yeah, we only have so yeah. much memory to go around. But yes, yes, you're absolutely correct. Black and white tend not to exist, both in no. how events unfold and the reasons for them unfolding. Mm. Yet in 391, under the instructions of our now officially Christian state and Christian emperor, Roman emperor Theodosius I, the Christian patriarch of Alexandria, Theophilus, destroyed all temples and public vestiges of the old pagan religion and worship towards those Hellenistic gods. Whether you call them Ju whether you call them Zeus, whether you call mm -hmm. him Jupiter, Venus, Aphrodite, you get the idea of exactly yeah, who it is we're talking guys. about. Yeah, we know those yep. guys. Our Olympians. Mm. A target of that ideological and theological purge was unfortunately the famed library of mm. Alexandria. And when I think about this and the various vestiges and Rather, the various things that happened to the library of Alexandria, especially the, the big fire that we'll be mentioning here in a moment, it reminds me of back on April 19th, I think of 2019, maybe it was 2018, and of course, watching the fire at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Mm. I just remember seeing the video of that and thinking to myself, this must have been kind of what it was like seeing at least gotcha. part of the library burn. It was such a striking image when Notre Dame set ablaze. It was, and it's also strange. That was like a big news story of, of like a pre-COVID world. And now, like the world we're in now, it feels like such a small fry event. Like, oh, an old building caught fire. No one died. Okay, but like it was huge. It was a huge event. Like it, it was part of like that cathedral's years-long history. Like 
it will forever be etched that in 2019 there was a fire there in the same way we talk about other ancient fires like many, the many great fires of rome the fire of london that was history happening right there it absolutely was mm. so let's talk about how this thing actually came to pass in the first place how do mm. we get ourselves a library of alexandria well this is history that predates our show by a fair amount by about yeah. three centuries so it was founded in the late 3rd century BC and was originally the ambition of one Alexander of Macedon, better known as Alexander the Great. <laughs> and of course, as you can imagine, the city of Alexandria itself was founded by one Alexander named after him, and that was in 331 BC. He actually and named places after himself, which is quite a rare trait in history, but it says a lot about a person who likes to name places after himself. It's true. And he's one of the few people that can get away doing that. Yes, yeah, he is one of the few who can get away with it. You know, like, there's no Alexander the Great Towers in New York for a reason. <laughs> for a very good reason, indeed. So, as far as Alexandria the city is concerned, mm. specifically given its geographical position, it was strategically advantageous because it was on the coastal eastern Mediterranean. It was a position that Alexander hoped in time would give him a dominant position to control the eastern Mediterranean waters, mm. which, if you are Alexander of Macedon and the civilization that you are a part of, which includes modern-day Greece, North Macedonia, all, various countries in the Balkans, part of Bulgaria, that, that, that sort of thing, that would be very, very important to you, without a doubt, because that, that is one of the main cruxes in terms of waterways in our empire, and even then, it's still incredibly important and will, has remained as such. Within 50 years of the city's founding, the city became a fully-fledged metropolitan oasis. And that is an incredible amount of growth for an ancient city over the period of just five decades. Mm -hmm. It attracted peoples from all over the ancient world and accumulated great wealth in its ports and many business opportunities. In time, it would become the capital of Egypt which would then have been transferred from the previous capital of Memphis. And I'm not talking about Tennessee. No, that's something I've never quite known why there's a Memphis in Tennessee. That's a, that needs a video oh. onto itself another time in the future. That is a... Yeah, that, see, name explains going to yeah. name explain, guys. Always it just, it doesn't to. turn off. It's just Patrick being Patrick. But right now, I want to know about like, what kinds of people did Alexandria attract? Did it attract the scholarly types? I imagine it with the library there. I imagine it would be like the more well-educated who want to arrive in the city. It attracted everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone. And the library became a very prominent part of that. Mm. So the library itself was a fascinating project. Though apparently, originally the brainchild of Alexander himself, after his famous death, it became the ambition for one of his three generals that ultimately ended up turning... Alexander's conquest and his empire into a triumvirate, you know, they split it up into thirds, mm. you know, his apparently favored general, Ptolemy I. And the empire of Alexandria was for his, for him, and the portion mm. that he took was going to be ruled from Alexandria. Yeah. So, like, what was this motivation for such an ambitious project? This is interesting. Mm. This is not necessarily something you always expect to hear, but this is apparently what happened. The incredibly ambitious project for the library had one 
greater aim above all else, to collect and house all knowledge of the ancient world. And to do this, Ptolemy and his successors subsidized the institution we know today as the Library of Alexandria to a phenomenal extent. And they had several additional aims in creating this library. It wasn't just the end unto itself. It had a role to fulfill a greater ambition. So at the time, obviously Egypt was not culturally Greek in any way that we no. would recognize or they would have recognized. So the part of the idea was creating a distinct Greek culture among the predominantly Egyptian population, which was not Greek. And in doing so, it basically sought to create a distant Greek outpost given their distance from the Greek homeland. In a sense, they were trying to create a Greek-inspired culture for Ptolemaic Egypt. Interestingly enough, and this happens from time to time, they were trying to do it from the top down, as opposed to organically from the bottom up. So basically, you had the Greek ruling minority looking and setting out to overhaul the entire cultural landscape of this land that they now control. And, and were they successful at doing this? This reminds me heavily of when um, Romans first arrived in Britain. And that was very much done from the base level. It was get like the peasants, get the, the, get the Celtic tribes acting Roman, speaking Latin, and then build it up from there. But this sounds like, like you said, the complete opposite approach. Did it Top work down. out for, yeah, did it work well for Alexandra? Uh, in many ways, actually. Mm. It was, in many ways, it was quite successful, though you can't solely credit the Ptolemies for it. Obviously, since this initi was initiated by Alexander before mm. he died and his conquest. When you stop and think about it, the ancient Greek language, of course, became what we would call today the lingua franca of the ancient Mediterranean world for centuries to come. And we're still kind of in that, in a way. Mm. For example, you may not have been able to speak Aramaic, but you could probably cobble together Pigeon Greek to communicate with a primary Aramaic speakers. In fact, and we mentioned this a long time ago back in the, in the first season of AD history, there are even some scholars that have reasonably extrapolated that Jesus likely spoke some Greek himself, simply because it was a necessity. It would make because sense. You know, you may not have the same native language, but you might be able to communicate some ideas that are necessary in ancient Greek. Moreover, Greek literature, the Hellenistic religions with the Greek gods, and Greek philosophy are but a few examples of how dominant Greek influence was during Mediterranean antiquity, to the point in which it permeates into modernity. But who was primarily responsible for actually founding and the work and went into it. Okay, so this is, this is interesting. So the library helped promote this in a lot of ways. But mm. as far as this goes, this is a lightly debated question. As mm. I mentioned, the original ambition for the library apparently was that of Alexander and then got taken on by the Ptolemies. But as he never lived to see it through, most scholars believe the project was overseen both by Ptolemy I and his successor, Ptolemy II. So basically... Ptolemy I kind of got, a, really, the ball rolling on it, mm -hmm. and Ptolemy II was uh, far more involved as, as his successor. And just something else I need to say is, what a fantastic idea from Alexander or Ptolemy, or whoever, to just have, to have the foresight to have somewhere to house 
the world's knowledge at that time. Unfortunately, it, has, it didn't survive into the modern day, but what a fantastic idea. Like, well done, lads, for having that forward thinking thing. We need to preserve this and preserve this and knowledge. I just think that's great. Would you expect any less from one of Aristotle's famed students? Exactly. No, luckily, he's, he was under a good learning tree. <laughs> yeah. Aristotle lives with us as well. It's, it's mm. an amazing thing. And it was also believed that the founding and initial legwork for the founding of the library was done by someone known as Demetrius of Phalerum, a famed student of Aristotle, apparently. Yeah, yeah, never Though that is somewhat debated. That was appointed governor of Athens by the Macedonian king Cassander. After a while in his 10-year rule there, Demetrius mm. was eventually exiled from Athens by many of his political rivals after which he traveled to live eventually in Alexandria, where for some time he was in significant favor with the Ptolemaic court. Though it is now believed he likely played a smaller role, collecting some early work for a number of reasons, including, but definitely not limited to, the fact that he began falling out with the Ptolemies. Mm -hmm. A little hard to continue your work when your main benefactors, uh, well, you're on their shit list. Yeah, yeah. However, he still may well have had influence over Ptolemy I in promoting his ambitions for the library to begin with. Though between Alexander himself and apparently to a lesser degree Demetrius, Aristotle once again just seems to find his way into this particular project down the road. <laughs> but it's just, it, it's really great. And after all, I mean, Aristotle was well known for having an interest in placing value on the collection and learning of all knowledge. Yeah, it makes sense that something as grand as this would be so heavily inspired by Aristotle. Like, it, it's basically his... If Aristotle had to exist as a building, it would probably be this. I couldn't have put it better myself, Hoss. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. Though we cannot be entirely sure of exactly how many works were housed in the library at its height, some ancient sources claim a figure in the neighborhood of a half a million papyrus scrolls. You know what's coming to mind for me, and I've got a question for you, but for some reason, you're, you're a Futurama fan, aren't you, Paul? My goodness, yes. You know when they go to the University of Mars and has all the world's knowledge, it's just two CDs, one says fiction and one says nonfiction. That's hilarious. Yeah, just that's some... <laughs> yeah, that's like it's both like a play on the Library of Alexandria. Yeah, and it's also kind of a play on a, on a Star Trek episode where they visit this great. Federation repository of knowledge known as Memory Alpha from the original series. Mm. And they're always making Star Trek references in that. So of I think course, it's kind yeah. of, I think both of those things are going on there, but it's the same general idea, whether it's the yeah. Library of Alexandria, whether it's the United Federation of Planets, Memory <laughs> Alpha, you got the idea. But yeah, it's just, that's a huge amount of scrolls. And you're saying like how, well, we, I guess we, when we think of the storage of information, we think very digitally these days, but that didn't happen back then. You had to have like this massive information had to be preserved in a physical way. And half a million scrolls is no joke. But how was it organized? How did this library operate? Was it, did they have the Dewey Decimal System back then? I don't think Dewey would be born for uh, <laughs> probably about 2,000 years. Yeah, but yeah they're about, give or take a century. <laughs> so when we think of library, we have mm. a very specific image in our mind, right? Mm. We think about stacks and being able to go and rent books and sit down and read them, do homework, whatever, right? It's a public institution that's meant to be free and enjoyed by all. One of the great accomplishments of our civilization, right? The library itself in many ways would be quite familiar in some respects to the modern person. 
because it was structured very similar to many modern universities. Think less library, think more university, even though, of course, universities have both. Yeah. And they often, like, I, I imagine that huge sort of traditional reading room, the big sort of circular reading room of like bits jutting off it, that sort yeah, of thing the, uh, that's coming to mind. Yeah. For me. Well, I forget exactly what they're called. Is it like an echo hall or something yeah. like that? I think that's what it was called at Loyola. I always used to do work there myself because it was always super quiet and nice. Mm. It's like, oh, this is very collegiate. Mm. You know, I now understand fully what I'm paying for. <laughs> anyway, but it has lecture halls, classrooms, research facilities, and attracted many of the best minds in the ancient world to travel there and work and live in residence there. Wow. Indeed, their work and pursuits were almost entirely subsidized by the Ptolemaic kings. And in fact, and just in case there's any ambiguity here, the Library of Alexandria was right next to the Ptolemaic ruling palace in Alexandria. That is how important it was to them. It was right there in that, you know, that royal quarter. And just how great it is for a civilization, for a ruling class, you put that much emphasis on on knowledge and the achievement of understanding more and learning more and education in general. So like, you know, to be paid by the king, by, by the rulers, to study, to learn, to, to acquire knowledge, to help, I guess, in theory, propel your civilization even more. Like imagine if, I mean, I don't want to get too political here, but imagine if modern governments put that much stock, just let, just paid people to learn, you know, like, you wouldn't have as many charities, like so they like. As I said, I won't get too political. In a, in too. a sense, though, we do. Yeah. Because if you look, at least mm. in the United States, for example, if you have public universities, mm. public universities have departments of various subjects, mm. and you have professional academics that are paid to work and teach and research there. Okay. Yeah. Of course. So the it, yeah. it has not gone away. It hasn't it's, gone away it, fully, but like just the idea of just no, like government by no means. paying just hey, you just sit here, we'll pay you to learn and teach things. I mean, that's incredible. That, and of course, also here in the United States, as much as the whole concept of student loans quite rarely mm. is a hot-button issue, there are, of course, many government grants and, and scholarships mm. and things of that nature, yes. some of which are very, very specific to undertaking that work with the idea that, at the very least, it can cover your subsistence. Not yeah. a hell of a lot, but you're able to go on doing your work. Yeah. So. The general complex of the library was a part of it. It was called the Musean, which is translated basically means place of the muses from the pagan mm -hmm. Hellenistic religion because the muses mm -hmm. were deities that are meant to inspire, that sort of thing. Though it is the direct descendant of the world museum that we know today. In this case, it meant an institution from greater learning and research took place. So... It's not a museum quite the way we would know it, even though later on when other libraries popped up that would become competitors, and there are competitors in this age, <laughs> it was more about not just what Alexandria was doing, but also putting things on exhibition as well. So mm. according to our old friend Strabo, haven't hey, said yeah. him his name in a while. That takes me back. Yes. It included a general auditorium for greater lectures, various classrooms, a hall where those in residency ate. Nice. And the perfidus, where much study and debate occurred. So given how ambitious this project was, was this goal achieved and how did it go about it? Like, how do you even collect 
all the world's history and information in one place? I can answer that in two words. Mm. Very aggressively. <laughs> nice. So how do they connect all this knowledge? Mm. Well, when I said this was a very ambitious project, the Ptolemies understood this very well and were very aggressive in how they sought to collect all the knowledge in the world. And this was primarily done in three major ways. They would spend large sums of money to outright acquire works they wished to acquire. They would also, apparently, when foreign ships would dock in Alexandria, those on board were apparently ordered to hand over any works that they had on board, after which the works would be transcribed and copied at the library and the crew would receive the copied version in return. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've talked about how this library was more of a university than a library. But as you mentioned, museum. Like, museum is coming to mind here as well, and especially when it comes to British, British museums. And that I'm sure you've heard this debate. Yeah, I think one in, one in particular. Yeah, the, you know, the classic Elgin marbles, the Easter Island head in the British Museum, like, it brings up that debate again of like, is it right to hoard this knowledge? And you said it was very aggressive. And I understand why you described it as being aggressive. Yes, it was everything in that and more. Mm -hmm. The last main one was attracting, of course, the great minds of the ancient world to come and have their work and lifestyle subsidized by the state. Because not only in that case are you acquiring knowledge that has already been taken down, you're also generating new knowledge. There's one such story where officials had worked out a deal. This is, this is classic. Talk about aggressive and a total dick move. <laughs> there is one such story where officials had worked out a deal with Athens. So we're all familiar with Athens, the city-state. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay, good. To borrow Athens' highly relished and jealously guarded original copies of the famed classical tragedies by Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus. And they gave Athens an enormous deposit of silver and gold as collateral for those cherished works' safe return, after which the Ptolemies told Athens they could keep their money. They sent back a copy, keeping the originals. In ancient Greek, it is translated English, this maneuver was translated into English today as, quote, a very dick move. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that sounds like something. That sounds like a classic Greek quote. Greek quote. Yes. One can imagine that Athens was pleased none at all. No, yeah. Who could blame them? Mm. Though, you know, those, those plays are still read, produced, yeah. studied, and enjoyed to this day. And those originals were hoarded. And obviously this was in a time when we don't really think about an original manuscript as being a big deal these days. Obviously, back then, copies weren't as hard to come by, weren't as easy to come by, or to say, like, you know... Very yeah. expensive. I imagine a lot of plays like that, there probably was only one written script of it about, or two, like, at least. But yeah, that's a, that is a dick move, as the Greeks said. So, was it a purely intellectual ambition to create this sort of institution? Or were there, like, other motives? Have I said... This has given me strong English empire claiming things as their own and putting them in display and vibes. Yeah, well, humanity changes little sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It was hardly just an intellectual pursuit for its own case. They definitely had clear motivations for going this route, and there's a, another reason that we haven't mentioned yet. One of the major purposes for the complex, though to be fair, it was obviously not the only motivation, was the great competition 
with the other two Hellenistic kingdoms that were part of the split that happened after the death of one Alexander the Great. It is well known that Alexander's three top generals after his death basically each took a third of the empire, and they were often in conflict with each other. Aside from the political rivalries and the obvious military conflicts, there was a push for dominance in soft power as well, of which the library most certainly qualifies. The main competitor to Alexandria's libraries were the Library of Pergamon, which is located in Asia Minor, now known as modern Turkey. Yet there were other critical differences between the two. As I had mentioned earlier, the museum in Pergamon was much more similar to what we envision today as a museum. Exhibitions, great works, you name it, all sorts of great exotic artifacts that the public could generally appreciate. Whereas the museum in Alexandria was much more focused on the acquisition of knowledge, making major breakthroughs in research and the education of future great minds. It is even said that this competition was so great, the Ptolemaic rulers banned exporting Egyptian papyrus to stymie work being done at the Library of Pergamon and the Library of Antioch. Gosh, this is a time. Talk about petty. And like, it just shows like if. How the value is also sort of say about how we value data and information is a very digital thing. It's the most valuable thing in the world today. Yeah, but like how in that day you, you needed paper, you couldn't just store things, and to be able to control Egypt had control over paper. And if you and if you, Egypt said no, obviously papyrus paper, same thing. If you couldn't, well, they're not have, the same thing. They're they're no, made no, no, differently, no, but, but yeah, the, same, same concept. Yeah, same concept, and like. If you couldn't have the papyrus, if Egypt said no, you can't have papyrus, you can't record your knowledge. Like that's an absolute gatekeeping of that knowledge. Then, like a physical embargo that you cannot, you cannot record your knowledge because we're physically not letting you. I mean, I guess they could find other ways, but yeah, papyrus is the easiest way to do it. But papyrus <laughs> probably became a nice little, nice little number and offering on the black market. I can imagine it's a black the black market papyrus indeed, but. Who were the kind of people that managed that managed to attract to the library? Like, were there any people we might recognize who made their way there? Like, any sort of famous faces who studied at the Library of Alexandria? I literally don't have all the time to be able to list them all. No. But I'm going to give you some fun ones and some that our listeners, especially longtime mm-hmm. ones, will most definitely recognize. Euclid, one of the great mm-hmm. mathematicians who ever lived, who wrote Elements, his groundbreaking treatise on geometry. We have Claudius. Claudius Ptolemy, not related Mm. to the ruling dynasty, the famed astronomer and author of the Algebus. Hypatia, she was a Neoplatonist philosopher and teacher of mathematics at the library. Eratosthenes, famed for his study of geography as well as a mathematician. He served as the third librarian of the institution, which was, especially at the time that he did it, a highly coveted and influential position. Believe me, in the library's heyday, if you could land that post, you're doing something pretty well because, well, obviously you're in favor, but it's just very venerated, interestingly enough. Mm. Next, we also have somebody that we've talked about before, one Galen of Pergamon. Oh, good friend Galen. Yes, one of the modern fathers of modern medicine, though, mm. well, before germ theory, to be sure who briefly studied at the library's medical school, which is believed to be the first such medical school, certainly in Mediterranean antiquity and likely uh, European and Middle Eastern North African history, in all likelihood. Mm. Nothing's definite, but it's generally recognized to be the case. 
Here's somebody we definitely know. Strabo. Hey, go Author of the geography as it's translated into modern English. And he believed to have visited there and briefly worked there in residence. Then there's somebody else we've definitely heard of if you're a longtime listener of AD history. Hero or Huron of Alexandria. Huron famously worked in residence at the university, and among his other inventions that he had come up with there, this is also where the Aeola pile, largely claimed and believed to be the first steam engine, was both thought up, created, tested. That must have been the first time we talked about the library on the podcast. It may well have been. It may well have been. So the list of these famous minds who come through, live, study, and work there is extremely extensive, and these are just but a few of those characters. But most people, when they think about the Library of Alexandria Paul, they think about the Great Fire. Like it's so, like I was saying at the beginning, it's like synonymous. That is most the thing the, the the library is most known for is for burning down. And how exactly did that happen? How did we reach a point where this bastion of knowledge could even catch fire? Why is it not more protected? Like surely we could have stopped this even with the best of measures we fail but here's the story as i mentioned in the open most folks have a general misconception on this particular point of the library's history when it comes to the first library of alexandria there wasn't just a single fire in question regarding the library but the most notable and likely most envisioned was related to a major fire set off by the forces of julius caesar during the roman civil war in 48 bc Julius Caesar and his forces were under siege in Alexandria with the forces and fleet of Ptolemy XIV hot on their tail. In order to forestall the enemy, Caesar's forces set the docks ablaze to forestall his enemy's advance. Little uh, scorched earth tactics. Mm, yeah. In doing so, at least some part of the library's collection of scrolls were destroyed by the Inferno. Do we know how many were destroyed in that first fire? Beyond what I just mentioned, the details become extremely hazy and fiercely debated from there, Patrick. Those ancient sources from Cassius Dio to Plutarch give slightly differing accounts for the damage that was done and the works that were lost in that particular episode. So much of this has to do with the debate of how much of the museum was actually damaged by the fire, or if it was only like an auxiliary warehouse near the docks that housed some of the institution's manuscript. But some of these ancient sources say up to 40,000 scrolls were lost. Oof, you do know what? That's a lot of scrolls, but even if that's just like, you said, know, half a million, 40,000, it's a sizable chunk to say, say the least, but eventually the Ptolemy's rule in Egypt came to a close, as we all know. Did the library fair after this once, um, Rome, once Egypt came under Roman rule? It did, but by that point, it was certainly getting past its heyday. Yeah. And where it kind of begins its slow decline. It's very much, sad. It is. Though much less is known about the library during the time in which the Romans ruled Egypt, it's generally understood that the reputation of the library definitely suffered and declined in general. It's strange because uh, the Romans were, fat, not, not to the extent of the Greeks or the Egyptians, but the Romans did enjoy knowledge. Like we have evidence, you know, they, they were they were keen historians. They they understood the importance of maintaining and recording knowledge. It's, it's odd that they didn't want to continue the upkeep of this library. They obviously did have a desire for a, a pursuit of knowledge, and Roman 
history and Roman culture is definitely one where it borrowed a lot, you know, specifically over time from various places that they conquered. You know, obviously they co-opted what was happening in Greece and kind of made it mm. their own. You know, the, the exchange and free exchange of culture and whatnot is just a very human thing. Mm. Um, but they had their own institutions. Of course, yeah. I guess they wanted to do things their own way. They didn't want to. They want to piggyback off of this Greek and Egyptian uh, building. They could do their own thing. And if it wasn't their own thing and was originally another person, another civilization's thing, mm. they just pretended that it was their thing from the beginning. You know, yeah. Classic, classic Rome. But mm. apparently, its reputation for intellectual rigor over time went out the window. And the institution didn't receive the same kind of overwhelming support it enjoyed in the previous centuries by the Ptolemies. Interestingly enough, it wasn't completely ignored, and it did receive some patronage by Roman emperors, but realistically, it just wasn't a priority like it had been under Ptolemaic rule. The funny thing is, I looked for this, and I couldn't find anything, but that doesn't mean that it isn't out there. Mm -hmm. You would have thought that Hadrian might have had some definitive motivation for wanting to patronage the Library of Alexandria, but I couldn't find anything to that effect. No, and that makes all the sense in the world. Obviously, he... Was he the little Greek? Like, he... Yeah, little Greek, Greekling. The little Greekling, like, he was obsessed with Greek culture. Like, more so than... I know a lot of Rome was inspired by Greece, but he was obsessed with this stuff. You would think if anyone would lend the library a hand it would be him but it's interesting to hear that there's no evidence that he did no as far as i could tell the only roman emperor that i could explicitly find that did so to some degree i believe was actually claudius mm -hmm. i believe don't don't take me to court on that no no but as i mentioned other libraries began to spring up around the mediterranean world mm. you know the library of alexandria faced a lot of greater competition in general it was not the whole sphere had become far, far more pluralized, if mm. I'm going to use a modern term. Also, the museum was also damaged significantly at least one more time before the events of 391, most notably when Aurelian invaded the city during his war with Queen Zenobia, conquering the splinter Palmyran Empire. Gosh, that's taking me back. <laughs> yeah, it really is, isn't it? Mm. And Aurelian very famously destroyed the royal quarter of the city where the library was located. And it was most definitely damaged during that time as well. And so we keep talking about times where it was damaged to a degree. But mm. clearly, Paul, there's a reason you've wanted to talk about it specifically in this decade. What happened in like 391? What, what, what happened to, to justify covering it now when we've had so many other opportunities to talk about the library in the past? So one is I've always wanted to talk about it because I've always thought this was an interesting subject. Oh, God, yeah. But, but the other reason I wanted to go here today is because I wanted to see some of the consequences of the conversion to official state religion mm. being Christianity. And this is a very salient one, one where a minor squabble got really, really out of hand. This seems a little familiar after our after our Trevingi Goths and Battle of Adrianople yeah. that we recently completed. Theophilus, of course, the Christian Patriarch of Alexandria, who later became Pope of Alexandria, a position known today as Coptic Orthodox Pope, as well as Bishop of Alexandria, apparently discovered by chance a hidden pagan temple in the city. Upon discovery of this hidden pagan temple, Theophilus put on display a number of pagan relics for ridicule before the general public. 
and once again, oh, how the times they had been a-changing. As Christianity had recently become the official state religion of Rome, paganism was on its way out. And instances like these, as we spoke about in your segment, were hardly uncommon. As you might imagine, official state religion or otherwise, this did not sit well with the remaining pagan population of Alexandria. It was still their religion. It was still their religion. This display of mockery incited attacks on Christians by enraged pagans, after which those pagans, in all likelihood greatly outnumbered, then went and fled the city. The question then became, Patrick, what is the appropriate response for such a transgression? Theophilus deferred to Theodosius I, asking him how these pagans should be dealt with. Theodosius's response in some regards is actually incredibly measured and even merciful, especially for a Roman emperor. Goodness. Theodosius apparently directed Theophilus to pardon those offending pagans, but still insisted that their temples, most notably the Serapeum, be destroyed. Theophilus apparently took to this task with great rigor, but it didn't just stop with the Serapeum or the other temples in Alexandria. Does it ever? Does it really ever? All sorts of public vestiges of the pagan religion were destroyed during this campaign. This is exactly like what we talked about in my segment, where just like it just it, it was that very much scorched earth technique, but with the pagan religion, just destroy as much as possible. Temples, artifacts, paintings, just everything gone, erase it. Violence sings its own song. Mm-hmm. Indeed, a widely held belief by many then and since is this campaign in Alexandria really served as symbolic for how Christianity had come out ahead of all the other major religions in the region at that time, and in many cases since. Mm. One such vestige was the museum that we talked about at the library, and remaining portions of the library itself. Like how the library had been damaged in the past, it once again was subject to an inferno. It's hard to say exactly what was lost due to the damage, because Hard to say what was even there and left, but it's fair to say that much of what remained housed there was taken down in the blaze as well. So why would they go after the museum anyway? Well, think about the the implications of the museum. It means mm. the place of the muses. The muses were part of that Hellenistic pagan religion that they were so mm. eager to target. There were no muses anymore. Like, they weren't a thing. Exactly. It was a natural target for that campaign. Mm. And there may have also been other additional pagan vestiges on display there as well. You kind of have to imagine there probably was. Mm. But in some ways, the real tragedy is that the museum was not even the primary target and was largely swept up in the fervor of that campaign in general. Mm. Of course, the irony of that whole debacle is that many in the Christian-inspired libraries that popped up elsewhere, especially the Middle East, were strongly modeled after the Library of Alexandria. In addition to that, while Christian texts were still the primary focus of those newer libraries, the so-called pagan philosophy continued to be taught and studied as well. Uh, it still is to this day to some degree, but was this truly the last nail in the coffin for the library, do you think? Like, was this the end of its... A-Day? Its importance? Hmm. Not quite. Mm. At least as far as we know. Mm -hmm. And so far what was left in operating, which is wholly unclear, 
it limped along for at least another two centuries. Yeah, that's a long time for limping along, right? That is a long, yeah, that's a long limp. It would seem that whatever remained was destroyed during the 6th century Muslim conquest when Alexandria was captured by the army of Amir ibn al-As. There's a story that it was destroyed by the Caliph Omar, from which this famous quote derives, though likely apocryphal, quote, If those books are in agreement with the Quran, we have no need of them. And if they are opposed to the Quran, destroy them. Close quote. That's a fascinating quote. And I just, Egypt is such a fascinating part of the world, just for simply how many different empires and cultures have called that land their home. Obviously, you have that classic ancient Egyptian, the hieroglyphs, or that sort of classic image, the pyramid. But then it became Greek, then it became Roman, then it became Muslim. So, something interesting. I really find about Egypt. I did a video recently over on Name Explain about using flags to represent languages. And one of the arguments is that the largest, the largest, the, the largest nation that speaks that language should represent it. So, like in that theory, the um, American flag should represent English. Hmm. I like the irony but, of that. But also going by that theory, the flag that should represent Arabic is Egyptian. So Egypt has the largest population of uh, Arabic-speaking people. But no one associates Egypt with Arabic at all. Like, you don't. You associate it with, like, that classic Egyptian thing. Like, I was looking onto it. I was like, no, like, e- like, you don't associate that flag and that country with that language. It just goes to a testament of Egypt's legacy and history of how the different cultures are. It's just, it's just something I find fascinating. Egypt is unfathomably old. Mm. Yes. Yes, super old. And it's only, you know, relatively recent that Egypt, especially if we're talking about ancient Egypt, those who built pyramids, mm. the pharaohs, mm. that that has become a popular field of study. Mm. Much, you Egypt know, told. I think, exactly. I think, especially after the Rosetta Stone was uncovered by the mm. expedition by Napoleon, that kind of got the ball rolling, and then by the late 19th century, you started seeing more Egyptology. I blame Brendan Fraser. <laughs> As well you should. As <laughs> well you should. What a great film. <laughs> but whether that quote by the Caliph is yes, apocryphal so or not, the words still ring powerfully to the eventual fate of the library. And people so often say about this library that the knowledge lost from the library at Alexandria put humanity back one of thousand years or so and it's actually much truth to that statement i do know for a fact that when we entered the middle ages knowledge did kind of fall back on itself but can we put that onto the loss of the library of alexandria not exclusively no so i tried to research this question and i didn't get at least what i considered to be a very substantial answer because mm. I've often wondered how they landed on the number of a thousand years and how that was settled mm. upon. There's no question that over the damage the library experienced in its eight centuries of existence, quite a lot was lost. Mm. But this is a phenomenon not at all unique to the Library of Alexandria, mm. as we know. Part of the experience, the greater store of humanity and its progress is one of two steps forward, one step back. Mm. We learn much. Some kind of great cataclysm occurs, many times of our own making, and vital Mm. knowledge becomes lost only to be rediscovered again much later. 
The Library of Alexandria is simply one of the most prominent examples. If anything, the library's history serves as an extremely salient microcosm example of that very phenomenon at work. And it's like a great visual representation of knowledge being lost. Like, it, it just is like, it's literally a library being burnt down. Like, you don't get a more visual metaphor of the loss of knowledge than that. It's true enough. And when you stop and think about collections of knowledge, and are we any more protected for the knowledge that we've accumulated in the digital format than they were in the scroll papyrus format you know both of them have their own unique vulnerabilities to be totally, sure yeah like it, especially how like a lot of our knowledge is held by like specific companies and entities and it takes just one of those entities to go nope but like, it takes it takes just google to be down for like so much to be lost you see when like a social media page is going out like, when youtube goes down or twitter goes down it's a huge we realize oh like it's it's these companies that we put so much faith in. And if they go, then we're screwed to an extent. Yes. But mm. something I'm, I'm curious about, and it's kind of a mm. fun thought. So all of this idea of the library, especially going back to Alexander. So today, you and I are doing this show through truly the greatest library of knowledge ever created. Mm -hmm. The internet. And if you put aside grabbing somebody from basically over, what, 2,300 years ago, maybe 2,400 years ago, in the case of Alexander, you put him in the present. And once you get him up to speed, you introduce him to fast food and Tinder <laughs> and Netflix, even though that's <laughs> no, that's no guarantee way. how that's going to be around much longer. But you introduce him to the internet, and I would be very curious to see his reaction to what is, certainly by comparison, and nothing has come close, this great library of knowledge that is the internet, how he would have reacted, how would have the Ptolemies reacted to this? I mean, other than it blowing their mind, because it's still very new by comparison to almost everything, how would they react to the greatest library of knowledge? Not all of it being made equal, Grant you, it's still the internet, but no, yeah. how that would have played out in their minds. My only hope is no one sets it on fire anytime soon. From your words to whatever deity you believe in's ears. And I'd like to thank you for listening to this one, Patrick, because this is what I have for us today. And it's my hope that our listeners of this episode, and whether you're new to the program, whether you're a longtime listener, and you simply find the subject interesting, and maybe you learned a few things here today for listening to this segment. Us here, you there. And we'll be back right after a word from one AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT, but you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at 
PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching adhistorypodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.